So yeah, a lot of people have a lot of guilt about buying food online. And when I say I do it, they're like, oh my God, you do? And I'm like, yeah. And so does the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. And like, so should you. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Carla Lolly Music is the food director at Bon Appetit and the author of a great new cookbook, Where Cooking Begins. Also on the show, taste contributor Max Felkowitz answers a burning reader food question. Matt, tell me about Carla's book. Tell me about Where Cooking Begins. Anna, I love this book for real. I've cooked like 10 things out of it, and it's definitely going to remain on my stack for a very long time. How is this cookbook going to change the way I actually cook? And it's going to actually start with the way you shop because there's an extreme thoughtfulness in the way that Carla lays out the act of shopping. Um, She doesn't have hard rules but insists that there's fun shopping and necessary shopping, which can also be done online. The necessary stuff is like uh, my dishwashing soap. Exactly. Like go out and like find – go to the butcher, go to the farmer's market – You know, have fun with this act of shopping, but also know that there's like not fun shopping involved. And yes, do that in like online, like Instacart. We talk about it extensively, how Instacart is changing the way many people are shopping. But then like have fun with the times when it's fun. So you're not just doing this one trip where it's like half fun, half not fun. You have the car full of groceries. You get home. You unpack them. And you're like, fuck, I'm so tired. I do not want to cook kind of takes the edge off that (laughs) it does like fun shopping and not fun shopping just think of it that way it's really smart here's matt talking to carla carla music welcome to the taste podcast thanks for having me uh, I've made about 14 of the recipes from... You're my MVP, I think. I think you have been the the steady, consistent achiever. Well, honestly, um, we, we do a lot of books here at Penguin Random House, Clarkson Potter, 10-Speed Press. We have affiliation with them. And we so we see a lot of books. But rarely um, do I find a book that I want to make multiple things from. We'll get into the recipes. Amazing. Why do you think I'm such a fan? <laughs> that is a great question. I think you're just, you're, you've are you been very enthusiastic. I think, why are you a fan? I think that, you know, cookbooks are weird. People will cook from them and sort of flip around and mm-hmm. scattershot. But what I noticed with you is you made one recipe and it was like, well, that, that was, that was good. Like that worked out. Let me try another one. Let me. And then when you do a few and they're working, right, there's a lot in recipe development about like trust and, you know, spending money on ingredients that like it better work. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, You better work. (laughs) And and, and you've you've said it so brilliantly. I wanted you to kind of articulate that because they have worked. I mean, the uh, sweet potatoes with. Uh, tahini butter has worked three times because I've made it three times. That's awesome. Um, we will talk about the book, but I wanted to like back up a little bit and talk about your time um, at Bon App. Uh, I, I, I like you guys, you and your team in the test kitchen are celebrities now. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm enjoying the. I think we're on like minute thirteen of fifteen, and I'm like super happy about that. So um, enjoying 
what has happened, the timing between the book and what's been happening with our Bon Appetit on YouTube. Yeah. Like I never, I did not see that on the horizon when I was, you know, diligently kind of plugging away at my proposal. Mm -hmm. Um, But the two things coming together has been really incredible. Um, So just having people who like watch us on YouTube, but then like know about the book. And there's been this like great kind of, you know, kinetic energy around that. Listener, if you haven't checked it out, there's (laughs) Carla and her team. You've got Brad there. You've got Priya there once in a while. You've got who else? Claire Claire. Saffitz and Molly and Chris and Andy. Yeah, And Andy. And I have made this comment privately, but never on the podcast. It's like the the like it's like the new Food Network, but it's like the way the Food Network should have operated. So that's funny for because for me as like an OG Food Network person, I worshipped you know Sarah Moulton yes. and Two Hot Tamales and those shows where people just cooked. Like I thought was so. Um, exciting because they were cooking in real time and just sort of sharing this information. And then I think we went into an era, not to knock Food Network, of like the competitions and the things and the stages and the like a lot of fanfare and entertainment around it. Um, I love doing the videos and I love working with the people in the test Mm -hmm. kitchen because the the guidance that we got or the direction that we got from the beginning was like, guys, just like everybody stop trying to be mm-hmm. some other thing that you think you're supposed to be from watching food shows. Just mm-hmm. like everybody just act normal. You're like was, hilarious people, it, like right. naturally. I mean, that was, you know, it's you you act differently when there's a camera and a sound and they put a mic on you and they're like, OK, Carla, like go like start um so it took a really long time just to kind of be normal and it was our boss adam was like guys everybody just like stop acting so weird (laughs) just be normal and i think you know ultimately people will ask me all the time like oh it looks like it's so much fun in the test kitchen just the way that you and i'm like it it is that much like we all really like each other You can't put an ensemble like together and be like, let's make a show with like this person, that you person. Pass the chem check. Yeah, exactly. Chem and test, when yeah. we hang out, that's it's like this is what we talk about anyway, yeah. you know. Um, but that I think was the biggest hurdle to get over was like, what should I be like? And then it was like, just don't be like anything. You are know? you gonna expand it out? And you're around eight to twelve minutes usually. Are you gonna expand it out into thirties and? Yeah, and 60s? we actually we have a series launching, um, a new series from the Bon Appetit, which is on our streaming mm. app. So OTT baby, OTT, which I was like, what is it? <laughs> so they're like, we're doing an OTT thing. I was like, cool. What is it? I know. Um, over the top is what it stands for. It's the box that sits on top of your cable box. Exactly. It's how we're going to basically watch television in the future. So if you have Roku or Android or something else or I, TV. Apple TV and search for Bon Appetit, yeah. those are launching there. And, um, the series that I was on is called Making Perfect Pizza. Okay. And we actually, those episodes I think are in the 20 to 30, but I got to go to Italy. So that was pretty, they don't like do that for my average, like how to make a steak video. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Molly and I actually that go, go to Italy. It was pretty crazy. Naples or Rome or North? We were in Campania. Campania. Yeah, yeah, hanging out with some buffalo. I want to talk about where cooking begins. Um, it's such an apt title because you do talk a lot about shopping, where cooking begins. And I wanted to um, kind of quote one of your tenants. Um, shop in person for the food that excites you. Shop small. Shop often. So give me an example of like the often and the small. 
Yeah, the things that I want people to shop for in person and to kind of refocus the way you shop for food and use those in-person trips for produce, protein, fish, meat, bread, maybe like a special cheese if you're doing like a cool cheese board, things that like really matter if you pick them out versus someone else picking them out for you. So fish and meat, like some things are great one day and like not great another and produce like comes in and out of season and might have been handled really well or might have been like sitting on the shelf for longer. Um, So that's what I really when I go into a store, stay on the perimeter, right? Mm -hmm. And like focus on your protein and your produce. And if you do that, you need it it only works if like at home the things that you don't really need to shop for in person are also kind of already there. So in my like quest to walk through a grocery store without even getting a shopping cart, that's like the the real that's like one of my secrets is like I don't pick up the basket cuz when I do, I just inevitably I'm like, "Oh, like Beluga lentils, like Carly, you don't need beluga lentils. No. Put the beluga lentils down. <laughs> yeah. Um, is on the other side of that is I shop online for like all of the things that come in a box, a bag, a jar, or a can. So it's not that I think everybody should cook every single thing from scratch or only eat produce and protein. It's that I want to go home and have my canned tomatoes, my canned beans, my coconut milk, my hot sauces, and my mustard oil, vinegar, nuts, like those are there. And I don't need to pick them out because a can of Goya beans is a can of Goya beans. It's always going to be there. They're all great. You should totally have them, but you don't have to schlep them. And you talk about openly, um, you talk about with a lot of like passion about shopping online for groceries, which is something that I, I discovered maybe a year and a half ago with Instacart. Yeah. And I feel like it's not talked about enough in food media But as you say, it's like essential. So how do you shop online? So, yeah, a lot of people have a lot of guilt about buying food online. And when I say I do it, they're like, oh, my God, you do? And I'm like, yeah. And so does the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. And, like, so should you. Um, How do I shop online? So I really use shopping online for everything I don't want to lug, right? Everything where the quality of that ingredient is constant. So, and it's not only pantry in the sense of like, I think pantry, when you say pantry, people think dry goods, right? Beans, salts, and oil. I My pantry also includes like citrus, mm-hmm. milk, yogurt, butter, um, you know, things, all of those things you can purchase online, if you know the brand that you like, you're getting convenience. And also with that convenience is time. And you get the time to then spend in your kitchen yeah. and cooking what you want to cook. And I think back to online cooking, uh, shopping, the algorithms are incredible. Right. Like they, will, they will give you the shopping list that they think you will have and the predictive nature of it is getting better and better. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can even create like your own list, your orders, shop from your last order, pull something up, um, your favorites. And then, you know, I think there is certainly... There's delivery fees. There's things to take into consideration Mm -hmm. when you give that advice. And I don't want to kind of gloss over that. But I also think that it has become a buyer's market. There's so much more options. Um, And across the country, there's like Peapod. You can order online and just pick up at a lot of um, grocers or 
across the country that are not all in like this New York City urban area. This isn't an urban thing. This is a suburban thing. And it will soon be probably spreading out more and more to the less urban areas. And I've found with the online shopping, you have when you have multiple vendors, then you're price comparing. And it's just gotten easier and easier to get what you want and pay less for it. Um, and make make it work for you. Look, if you if you're in a store and you're picking up the three things that you need, and you're like, oh, I also need olive oil. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, buy it there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but if you can set yourself up for me, the time that I gained, it also gave me this experience of shopping for food where. I didn't have a gigantic list. I didn't have a huge checking out, like being online and bagging all the stuff and then getting home and unpacking all the stuff and then putting it all the way, all the way to the point where I would get my food away and be like, well, I'm not, I'm not You're exhausted. You're yeah, tired. Yeah, I'm so over yeah, it. Yeah, like over I, it. I don't even want to cook anymore. Like I don't, I'm like, ugh, where am I going to put this thing? So now I shop for things without a recipe mm-hmm. I go in I'm like what well, looks good what's sort of like what am I in the mood for what do I want to do and then I get home and I'm like start just pulling stuff out uh-huh. of the cabinets and the drawers and- well, I think your book does a really nice job of illustrating um, how you can kind of spin recipes and you have this option like a b c d e right right and that's is that's just the way you've you've learned to cook at home right and, and adapted um, you mean riffing based yeah. on what I have in the house? Yeah, I really do think that that is, and I say this in the book, like making substitutions is the mark of a confident cook. Yeah. I think a lot of people who are gaining confidence as a cook think that substituting is a cop out or that the recipe won't be as good if mm. they make those changes and get very like wedded to exactly what it says. And I can tell you from experience with developing recipes, like, you know, there are recipes in the book that I had a certain spice, you know, mix in mind, mm-hmm. and I was working on writing the cookbook. What's one I, example? Um, there was one recipe that actually didn't make it into the book for another reason, but I wanted to do like a pan-roasted carrot with turmeric and chili. And I was like, had the whole idea, and I was like, yeah, turmeric thing, the thing, I'm going to get them brown, I'm going to bloom the spices, I'm going to saucy glossy, whatever. And then I opened the drawer and I was like... Don't have turmeric. And I was like, Carly, you idiot. Like this whole day you've been like conceiving this thing in my head. And it was one of those moments early on when I realized like I'm not going to the store to get turmeric right now because I wouldn't ask a reader to do that either. I would want them to kind of figure out a substitution. But so, we as home cooks, we freak out. Yeah. We freak out. We're like, oh my God. I'm now what I'm done. Destroy this recipe. And that's also based on a lot of feedback that I've gotten from re- recipe you know, users and readers who are like, I don't have the half teaspoon of smoked paprika. And it's like, don't worry about it. And people are like, what do you mean? It's in the recipe. Um, So I really wanted people to feel like this th- this ingredient is here because it's fulfilling a function. And a lot of other things ingredients can fulfill the same function like mm-hmm. it's fine it's like some means um kind of method yes, as well that's I mean, right that's kind of that idea and when you say that you've made the sweet potatoes with the tahini butter three times like that's exciting to me because i hope that the fourth time you make it you actually don't have to look at the recipe yeah. and if you didn't have lime juice to make that butter mixture but you had unseasoned rice vinegar you would be like I'm using that. Like, I thought I had a lime, but I don't. That doesn't mean I can't make this. It just, 
the lime is there because you need something tangy and sour because sweet potatoes are like sweet and starchy. And, you know, that that is like that excites me when I get feedback from people who are like, Carla, one of my coworkers was like, I made a recipe from the book. Don't get mad at me. I changed a couple things. (laughs) And I was like, what did you do? And she was like, well, it said to use almonds. And in the in the spin it list, it said I could use, you know, hazelnuts or cashews, but I didn't have that. So I used pistachio. And I was like, if everybody could be like this, <laughs> you know, you're going to be the recipes are in good hands. Was that the charred broccoli salad with cheddar dates and honey? No, she was making the pan roasted Romanesco, which but... I made as well. That's a beautiful. But let's talk about that charred broccoli. So I- I've made it a few times. Let's walk us through this. One of my favorite recipes. I really like the sweetness and the and the saltiness balancing out. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that I like about also the method for the broccoli, so you leave it in really big florets, and this is something that goes back to using the whole thing instead Mm -hmm. of trimming stalks and then not knowing what to do or wasting. Um, I leave like quite a bit of stock on the broccoli, and then you... um, it's less cutting, first of all. So, like, prepping it doesn't take as long because you don't have to cut it into such less small... mess because it's like, like yeah, destroying your exactly. Board. Yeah. You know, I have like little bitsy florets flying all over the place. <laughs> and then you cook those, like, it's almost like skin side down on a fish. Like, you just cook, cook it on the cut side down to get like a lot of color and a flavor development, but then you leave it really crunchy. So, it's one of these like cheap tricks that I love of like one ingredient kind of giving you multiple texture payoffs. Yeah. And it and it just comes down to like how you, how you treat it, um, and then there's is it gouda? Oh, you had cheddar, cheddar as, the, yeah. as the number one, but gouda would be pretty. Gouda dope. would work I mean, in there. Yeah. So cheddar and the dates and yeah. um, nuts and honey and honey, which I love. Right. Like honey is something we don't cook with enough on the savory side. I right. feel it's more of a baking ingredient. But honey, like that's you know broccoli is cabbage, so that's sweet and bitter flavors, mm-hmm. like the way that you would add. Um, I could see putting honey into like a dressing that where you're using radicchio or honey mm-hmm. mustard is another good example. Honey mustard be good. Yeah. yeah, and it needed it must have needed it because I put it in there. <laughs> I stand pretty hard for the wheat berries, roasted squash, buttermilk, lemon, and herbs. Yeah, grain that... bowl. I mean, it's a grain bowl, very very squirrel. Yeah, but like why why these flavors together? What's that was one there? of my favorite recipes. Also, I love. Grains. Sometimes I'll just put them on to cook before I figure out the rest of dinner because it's like, well, worst case scenario, I'll have some already cooked grains, you know, Um, and that one, that's a very like seasonally adaptive recipe because you've got the squash. So you have the the chewy kind of nutty grains. Mm -hmm. Then um, the squash are, you know, they get really sweet and it's a very spoonable texture. So you've got this like chewy, creamy, and then a nice punchy dressing that has acidity and spice. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I love mm-hmm. using. I love using uh, buttermilk. I feel like it's underutilized. My one thing with buttermilk is you buy like the big thing of buttermilk. So what do I do? I like looked at that buttermilk and I actually ended up just throwing it away. So funny because you know what's amazing about buttermilk is it does not go bad. I know. So, I knew that and I just uh, um when I look at the make, date I just get freaked out. Sorry. So well I have um I have a child who really enjoys pancakes. Oh, yeah. So there's a butter there's like buttermilk will come up a lot for us that way. But buttermilk also is great to thin out anytime you're like want to thin out yogurt. Like we all buy Greek yogurt now. And if you want to make something that's more dippable, um, I use I use buttermilk a lot in um, 
dips and dressings. Yeah. It's like great that way, but it's also an amazing marinade. Because it has salty, it's sourness, mm-hmm. it's salty. Pretty much um, any protein. It's lactic. It's yeah. got like those lactic flavors. So then you could just yeah. like pour it over. Don't throw out your buttermilk anymore, I Matt. Know, it's crazy. <laughs> I did it and I thought of you actually when I was oh, like. Oh boy. I wasn't like mad at you, but I was like, Carla <laughs> asked me to buy buttermilk and now I'm throwing it away. And I was like, I'm going to ask you about it. You Now it you just, know. Just like put it on meat. Yeah, or just use it in a dressing like a vinaigrette yeah. where you cut half and half with um, olive oil and buttermilk would be really, really, really good. Why dedicate an entire chapter to eggs? Well, there I could have had even more egg recipes. People love, I think we've grown up, right, in the mm-hmm. era of put an egg on it, right? So for me, We're it was over like, that, though, Carla. I know. So it's like put an egg on it, under it, next to it, totally. with it. Um, and for me, eggs are one of those pantry ingredients that we always have, mm-hmm. but that they're also a great source of protein and like a perfect food. Re- they're really quick cooking. Um, and so they come into play in a lot of meals. Um, they're like a dinner solution, I think. Yeah. I love eggs. What's your one of your favorite recipes from that chapter? I think the no one talks about it. It's one of my favorite pictures in the book, too, that carbonara stracciatella, yeah. um, which is like all the flavors in carbonara, but done as kind of an egg drop soup or a stracciatella soup. Yeah. Um, so it's got bacon and it has this like really salty broth, but then... Um, it can't all be sort of richness and parm. So there's lettuces that you put in the bowl and then you just sort of spoon the hot mm-hmm. um, soup over it. And I don't know. I also am like kind of love the idea of lettuce soups and wilting lettuces. Well, there's multiple textures going on. And I feel like you, you've articulated this previously. Uh, multiple textures is really key to a great ingredient, a yeah. recipe, right? Yes, definitely. And that one's got... You know, the silky egg, a spoony broth, there's chewy bacon in it, and then you have this wilted kind of lettuce that's giving you freshness, but also gets tender as it mm. sits. I really like that one, and then a lot of black pepper on top. Um, yeah, we should make more egg drop soup. I love it. And let's lettuce, too. Are you working on any lettuce features um, in the test kitchen? Lettuce feet? No, we're we're starting to think about spring. Yeah, and if we're gonna do a spring story that we shoot, we like to spring and summer like really yep. pays off if you shoot them. And this is for next year. For neck, and it would run in like spring twenty twenty. Yeah, I love how that sounds. Yeah, oh, yeah. Spring twenty twenty. Uh, I want to hear a little bit about your your previous career in restaurants. Sure. You know, you worked as a you worked as a chef, and and I think uh, it clearly shows in your cookbook writing and and in your future cookbook writing. You'll, you maybe will tackle this more, but do you miss cooking the working on the line? I do a lot of times. Actually, that was not the best paying job I ever had, um, but it was definitely the purest job I ever had because you would go in. And every day starts over. And right, you like you don't carry things from the day before unless you've prepped them or whatever. But every day starts with a new round of service and food that has to be made. It was very immediate. It was um, high adrenaline. I was never bored. Mm-hmm. And I just for a long time, because I worked as a line cook straight out of culinary school, I kind of just couldn't believe that they were paying me to cook. I was like, this is insane. Like, they're not paying me a lot, but they are paying me 
to cook, which I which for me was an education. And you just you loved the act of cooking and yes. the completion from A to B to C, right? Totally. I thought the you know the the wholeness of it, like uh, someone comes in, they are hungry, they ask for food. You cook it, they eat it, the plate comes back. And I worked in restaurants where the bussers were all trained to show the chef at the line, you know, at the pass, the empty, the plates. So, like, you would see plates come back empty, plates not coming back empty. And it was, like, this beautiful little life cycle. Um, and I also really loved, I loved the adrenaline mm-hmm. of it. I loved, like, the physical nature yeah. of that job. Um, I'm sort of like a futzy person, like I can't sit still for too long. And I realized looking back on it that I loved it because it was the energy. Yeah, it was it was physical. It was demanding. And I also come from a place or a family where like working hard should involve some amount of suffering. So then I felt like (laughs) (laughs) the suffering meant that I was doing something important. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm really putting it all into I mean, you still that's still the editorial right. job, too. I mean, there's a lot of suffering in, in journalism, right? I feel the same way about massages, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, they, if they don't hurt a little bit, like, you're yeah. not getting your money, which is worth. Um, <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you about the restaurant world, and, and do you see yourself ever going back to it, uh, owning, operating? Never. No, I really don't. Because I did it as a line cook, and it's, like, a very hard job. And then I did it from the managerial side. So I was a kitchen manager. Then I was an operations person. And then I was the first general manager at Shake Shack in Mm -hmm. Madison Square Park. Um, And I really thought that was what I was going to do when I started cooking. I was like, I'm on the path. I'm going to line cook. And then sous chef, executive sous chef, 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 owner, operator. Like, that Mm -hmm. was really my dream. And the more time I spent in restaurants, I was like, this is a terrible business. I was like, no one (laughs) should tell the people doing this, but it's, like, really bad. The margins are really bad. The margins are really bad. The margins at Shake Shack were incredible. You know, maybe I got out of that one too soon. But looking back on it... um, I can't. No, I can't really imagine it. Yeah, that's straight talk because I think uh, people don't talk about the margins in the business. And that's why we should be paying more for our restaurant meals. That's right. And supporting restaurants. Like it's just yet another reminder, yet another example on the Taste Podcast where it's like restaurants, they're not getting rich. Right. People are not getting rich. I And I'll say that without with at the same time, like. The people who do it well, I have the utmost respect for. Yes. Like, I love going to restaurants yeah. and supporting that industry, and I just can't imagine making it work. You know, yeah. What was your break then to get into journalism? I and mean, there must be a moment, like an inflection point, where you yeah. went from GM to journalist. Yeah, so I was, after Shake Shack, I was teaching culinary management, and I was consulting. I had kind of mm-hmm. been like, it was a really intense time. Um, and I was expecting my second child and, uh, I was teaching culinary management at Institute for Culinary Education. And a friend of mine had a friend who became the deputy editor at, um, Everyday Food Magazine. And that friend came to me and she was like, oh, you know, my friend's hiring and she's met a lot of magazine people, but she, she's like just meeting a lot of people. Would you want, would you ever want to go interview? And I was like, Sure. Like, at the very least, I'm going to have a good story for my students, a lot of whom were in culinary management, but they were really interested in food media. And I didn't have a ton 
to report on that to them. So I was like, well, you're going as a spy. Exactly. I was (laughs) like, at the very least, I'm going to go through like HR at Martha Stewart. Like that's going to be a trip. And I'll, you know, of course. So um, I started interviewing and I would like have an interview with her. And then three weeks later, I wouldn't hear anything. She'd be like, oh, I come back. I want to have another like, let's meet again. So it was like getting dragged down and dragged. And then at the end of this like very long interviewing process, she offered me the job of deputy editor. Um, which was pretty incredible considering I had worked in book publishing straight out of college before Mm. I started cooking. So there was like a little, you know, and then I had the food experience. So it was like this first time that I was able to link the two. That was good for like probably the sign off and the upper, like she has a little bit of editorial. She's not just a cook. And I think I got that job because she didn't, she was surrounded by a lot of magazine and editorial people. And I was bringing like some other kind of information about, you know, hands-on experience about cooking and recipe developing. And, you know, then I was like, well, writing a menu is not that different from writing a headline. So, and it was really that job that um, introed me into Bon Appetit. So I, you know, again, like couldn't have replicated the course of my career, but the fact that I can draw on the restaurant experience and the repetition of the way that I learned how to cook was through wrote you know what I mean you get so much experience in such a short amount of time when you're searing scallops every day for six hours for five days a week which can be applied to journalism of course exactly like like, like you're doing front of book it's January then it's February then it's March then it's April and you go over and over and over again and I I feel like uh, I'm glad to hear this story I hope it inspires listeners who maybe aren't in the traditional journalism world journalism school just saying didn't do it myself not really a huge (laughs) fan another day I say that about cooking school too like if you end up in a good restaurant where they're willing to invest to train you but where you need to learn good like choose your restaurants wisely like you want to go somewhere where you're going to learn good habits because you can go to work in a restaurant and learn some really crappy habits as a as a chef um i learned more i mean it was great foundation but i learned more working completely that's why i couldn't believe they were paying me (laughs) carla i wanted to ask you we ask all of our guests in the taste podcast there was a, a book project out there. I know your, your book just came out, so we're not. You, know, you probably don't want to think about making another book. But when you want to make another book, when that time comes, what is the dream project for you? Wow, that's a very tough question. It's more like, is there dream technology oh. that would make it so that writing would be faster? Yeah, no. <laughs> the writing was the hardest. Um, I almost had. A a dream project with this one because I was working with, I worked with everyone who I wanted to work Mm. with, including my sister, who was the prop stylist. Like being able to collaborate with um, people that I respected so much in my field from working in magazines, I had relationships with people. So when I put that team together, I was like, this, I can't believe this is going down like this. Mm -hmm. Um, My dream, I do have a dream of. Um, really pushing the way that recipes are written further. I think that I was very focused on having a conversational tone in the writing, not only of like the written parts of the book, but in the recipes as well. So that, you know, sometimes recipes are written in this very technical language. And when you read a lot of recipes, it gets really boring. It's a rubric. Yeah, exactly. It's like text you know, scientific text or this like other kind 
Um, and so the dream for the next book, and I definitely want to write another one, would be to somehow continue to like push that so that the recipes would be even more kind of breaking down what you're supposed to, how you're, you know, just mm-hmm. forget about a style guide, mm-hmm. just like being able to explain things in a way that people really understand and can visualize. I think where Cooking Begins does that in a way. I feel like the recipes are not uh, larded with like words that are unnecessary. They're really they're really intuitive. I tried to be really um, visually like attentive to what was happening visually in a pan while I was cooking because a lot of it was recipes that I did know very instinctively because mm-hmm. they're things mm-hmm. I cook all the time. And really, you have to record, you know, your weights and your measures and your volumes and timing. Mm-hmm. And so that was like, you know, I always had a notepad out. But I really tried when I was cooking to like pay attention. Like what... Like, what is the difference between, like, a dry sizzle sound and, like, a nice, juicy, enough oil, wet sizzling sound? And to train yourself to listen for that so that you know without necessarily – you're just taking in a lot more information, getting a lot more feedback from what's happening in the pot, you know? Um, That was a big thing for me just because, like – we go off of times and like you can't go off of Never. times. Yeah. Uh, electric flame and a gas flame. Come on. Or like thin pan, really heavy bottom thin pan. pan. You know? That's something we don't talk about enough is like pans actually have oh, thickness. Oh, big time. Like one costs $5 and one costs $75. That really hit home. I was at an Airbnb a couple years ago reporting a story. So I was staying in an Airbnb and um, one morning I got up and I was like, I'm going to poach an egg before I go to the shoot. And... The place was lovely. They had great taste, but they had the crappiest kitchen stuff. And I had a pan. I know how to poach an egg, okay? I, like, took this pan. I was coated with this weird thing and had grooves on the bottom. And it was, like, this giant plastic-coated spoon. And I literally was like, I can't. I don't even know what's happening. (laughs) But I have a pan of simmering water. And somehow the egg is stuck to the bottom of the pan. It just, like, went boom to the bottom. Yeah, and it just made me realize, like, that cooking is so much harder when you can't rely on the quality of the equipment yeah like it's such a big it changes everything i was like i i don't know what's happening <laughs> i'm yeah i'm pretty sure i'm doing it the way i always do and like i just stuck a poached egg to the bottom of the pan yeah listener take that away it's it's like good advice like maybe spend a little bit extra on that pan or if it's not working it might not be your fault it might be your equipment's fault Exactly. Call the Music, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. We're joined by Max Falkowitz, producer of the Taste Food Questions, which appears uh, on the Taste Daily podcast feed. Listener, you should definitely subscribe to Taste Daily. Max, I have a question for you. Do spices really expire? So the thing that makes spices taste good and makes them taste like spices is this collection of aromatic oils and other compounds that um, are exuded by oil sacs whenever you um, break open and uh, apply heat to uh, to the seed bark or whatever you're cooking. And those oils degrade over time. And every time that you smell them, that's because they're leaving the food and going away. So do spices ever expire? Not really, in the sense that they won't 
go bad. They won't rot. They won't get moldy. Uh, they won't make you sick, but they definitely lose potency over time. And the general wisdom that most uh, spice industry professionals would recommend is that depending on how um, fresh the original source of spices that you're getting, keep ground spices for around six months, keep whole spices for a year, maybe two. The real problem is that most uh, supermarket spices arrive at the supermarket already stale because the commodities market for spices involves a lot of waiting around and you're not so if you're buying your if you're buying spices from a supermarket use them i would say as soon as possible and buy whole spices and grind them yourself and so buying whole spices are we talking like what are some spices that you should definitely really think about uh, buying whole so I always buy cumin seeds whole, and I don't even bother to grind them because whole cumin seeds work great on their own. Um, I really like grinding my own cinnamon when I can, and I'll usually throw a couple sticks in a coffee grinder and keep that around for a month or two for like really fresh ground cinnamon. It'll completely change your perception of what cinnamon should taste like. And you're kind of in the spice trade business yourself. You you work at a company called Snook, and you do some consulting. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, so Snook is an online grocery devoted to hard-to-find specialty ingredients from around the world. And it carries foods from like 2,000 foods from spices to grains to strange uh, vinegars to preserves. And uh, one of the things that we specialize in is spices. We have, I think, over 400 at last count. And we are carrying some exclusive imports from, uh, from Myanmar and Lebanon. And it's a wonderful market that everyone should check out. It's snookfoods.com. And uh, we also do a lot of stories on the foods that we carry. So Love it. And definitely, listener, check out the, the website because there's a lot of great journalism happening in there. Max, thank you so much. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.